This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and with me today is Clemente Lisi. And we're going to talk about what's going to happen during the 23-24 season, particularly what we're looking forward to happening during the season, what questions we have about the upcoming season. I'll definitely throw in some hockey card-related stuff in there because there's a lot to look forward to with some of the new hockey sets that are coming out. But of course, we want to talk about the teams and the players, or at least the ones that we find interesting, and try to think about what might happen. So, Clemente, how are you? Good. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks for doing this. I always say I want to have you on the show more often, and I'm going to actually make good on this to have more people and more voices you know, uh, on the show. And uh, you've written your Clemente's Corner for puck junk for quite a while now. I think it was what, since last summer you started, it was like around the, was it the spring expo of last year? Correct. Which ended up happening in June, right? So yeah, spring expo. So that was, uh, yeah, it was quite a while ago, but your articles, when you write articles for puck junk, they get a relatively speaking, they get a lot of comments, which I'm envious of because it seems like most people don't leave comments anymore. They might mention something on social media, but they won't actually go through the trouble of typing a reply in the blog post. But for you, you get you get quite a few, which is which is good. You're whatever you're writing about, it's definitely resonating with people. No, I like that. I like the, the interaction with the readers sometimes. I seldom write back. Oftentimes they're just not happy with my rankings or my listicles. I tend to do lots of pieces around around that. But it's good that people are reading and they're engaging. And you know, we have a really great community, I think, um, uh, hockey car collectors. It doesn't seem like there's lots of us around the country, but there are actually. And so, but there aren't that many places to get hockey card content, I do think. So I do think that Puck Junk is a great website for that. And, and kudos to the newsletter. I think it's been a really great addition to the discourse. Yeah, you know, the newsletter is great. I'm not just saying that because I write it, but it's great because what it's doing is it's really forcing me to just kind of like focus on what's going on that week because a lot of times I'll see something and I'll say oh I want to write about that but then I never do because look this is a sideline for pretty much all of us right this is not my full-time job you know you you're a writer but you're also a, a teacher is that correct that's correct yes so this is the writing is a side gig of course right we do this because we're passionate about it so a lot of times, I mean, there's so many things where I'd say, oh, I should write about that, and I don't, right? And so what the newsletter does is it just says, okay, dude, write 50 to 100 words about this. You could do that, right? Like, I think a lot of times as writers, I know you could probably relate to this, we always think that, like, the thing that we want to write, it's got to be the be-all, end-all, or it's got to be the best thing. Now, I'm not saying, like, about your book, because I know you just wrote a book about World Cup soccer, and I'm sure you sweated a lot about that trying to make it as comprehensive as possible am i right no yeah not as comprehensive but also to fit a certain word count you know not i could have written a thousand pages but nobody wants to read that right so you have to be concise but at the same time comprehensive which is difficult to do and then things are constantly changing and editing and so the beauty of the daily journalism or even the newsletter the weekly journalism is that you can get things out there off your mind and in the conversation in addition to social media, because I don't consider writing on social media to be writing, 
I think the kind of things we do is more that kind of writing where we create content and people share it and talk about it. And I think that, you know, it's funny how email has been around for a while now. And, but I think still getting stuff sent to your email has become really a number one choice among lots of people. They get up in the morning and they want to read what's happening in the world. And like your newsletter comes out Monday mornings. And it's like one of the first things I read on Monday morning is like, what's going on. And, and what I'm learning is that there's lots of content out there and that the Toronto sport expo is adding new signers like every day, it seems. So it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Every time I turn around, they keep adding more, more and more people. So a couple things I just want to toss out here. So uh, October 5th, Puck Junk turned 16, which means I've been doing this blog for 16 years. Haven't been doing the podcast as long. That started in 2015, but it was 2007. It was October 5th of 2007 when I launched Puck Junk because I had quit my full-time job. Well, first of all, I had the luxury to to quit my full-time job. I was out of debt. I had money in the bank. I knew that I didn't want to go to work for a while. I kind of wanted to just figure out my life. I took improv acting classes. I started teaching a lot more at the college I was teaching at. I ended up going to grad school, but then I started Puck Junk because I'm like, I want to write about hockey. I want to write about hockey cards. I mean, this was kind of like really when blogging was starting to really start to hit that crescendo, right? Like the late 2000s where all of a sudden... You had all these blogs like Barstool and SB Nation and, and stuff like that come out. And while my blog is, isn't as popular as those blogs, and it's also very niche, you know, and not about college sports. I mean, write about college sports and you're going to get a following, even if it's a terrible blog. And a lot of terrible blogs have huge followings <laughs> because of what they write about. So I'm actually a little happy that I actually stuck with something for 16 years because I can't think of any hobby that I've had for that long. But then again, I guess that's part of being an adult, right? Like when you're a kid, you change hobbies every five minutes or whatever. And well, you have kids, right? Yes. No, you're right. Uh, they have a, a very low attention span. So to be able to stay with something for that long, I mean, it, the site's so old now that nobody even calls it a blog anymore, right? It's just a website. Right. But yeah, blogging was like a thing and it was replaced really by Twitter and Facebook, but websites still exist, obviously. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the word of the year in 07 was the word blog. So yes, I don't know if it was 07 or 04. It was definitely around there. And I remember that because I actually taught a blogging class for a couple of years. And this was around like 2011, 2012, to about 2014. I taught a couple of different blogging classes that I developed. And that was like one of the questions was like, uh, blog was word of the year in what year? And I think it was like, did we yeah. say 1994, 2004, whatever, whatever choices we gave, it was kind of an easy answer, but now I, I don't even remember. <laughs> so, but, yeah, but it's in that time with that the web was really learning, gaining, like, you know, gaining a following and people were on the internet and they wanted content and, you know, it's funny because the format still works, just no one calls it a blog, but but it is uh, enduring in that way because when it, you're right. In terms of audience, it's very niche. But at the same time, there's, you know, the internet, if we learned anything about the internet over the last 30 years, is that 20 years, is that people are looking for these really specific areas that they're interested in. And that's the cool thing. I mean, when we were collecting back in high school, we didn't have a website to go to. We had to just meet people and hope they liked the same things we did, which which is why card shows were such a big deal and, and remain a big deal because you find like-minded people there, but now you can find them on the internet, which is also cool. Yeah, absolutely. 
So one person I found on the internet is this gentleman by the name of Chris Atala, who is a independent video game designer. And he's been developing for the past couple of years, he's been developing this game called ODR Hockey Heroes. ODR stands for Outdoor Rink. So it's this video game. If you remember games like NHL Hits, NHL 2-on-2 Open Ice, Wayne Gretzky 3D Hockey, where you just you, you picked up the controller, you had a pass button, you had a shoot button, and then you had like a check button and you maybe had like a switch player button, right? And that's all you really needed just to know those four things, right? And now they've gotten so complicated, like hockey video games. And also there's really no competition in them. It's the EA game. You're either going to play NHL 94, or excuse me, it shows my age. I say NHL 94, NHL 24, whoo, been 30 years, right? So you're going to play NHL 23 or NHL 24, or that's it. It's not like where you had a bunch of other hockey video games because the NHL doesn't really want that. And I think the thing is, is that like, if it's not licensed by the league, I think a lot of retailers aren't going to just bother. Well, it's not licensed by the NHL, so we're not going to sell this game. So you've had this like movement for indie games where you have like developers make these games and then they release them on Steam. They release them on the PlayStation Store, the Xbox Store, and could sell them themselves. So this game called ODR Hockey Heroes, it's a run and gun style of hockey game, but it also has an RPG mode. And I want to read the premise. This premise made me smile when I read it. So here's basically the synopsis of the game. The hockey gods have plunged the earth into an internal winter. And the only way to save the world is to defeat the hockey gods on iconic ODR. Uh, so on the outdoor rink. Create your skater and draft your team before embarking on a journey to save the world by playing hockey. I'm sold on that premise right there. It sounds like an interesting idea because they want to mix, you know, these fighting games and sports games really into one place. Usually you don't get them together. You get like the, you know, the, the kind of stuff my son plays on Nintendo, which is like Roblox and all that other stuff. And then there is the sports ones and they, the two universes don't really meet. So that's kind of fun that these two kind of meet together. I know a couple of years back, now I say a couple of years, this could have been 10 years ago because I don't buy the EA hockey games too frequently. Um, but I know one year they had this sort of like RPG mode that was called like live the life. You create a character, you're this highly touted NHL rookie. And then it was just basically about you living the life as an NHL player. And so it would even have like these hypothetical situations where like a fan asks you for an autograph. What do you do? Give him the autograph. Don't give him the autograph. Or a fan asks you for this or whatever, like puts you in these like situations, right? I guess to make your character more popular or whatever. So, I mean, these sort of things do exist, but they're very far and few in between. A couple of things that I also found uh, that were amusing is that the game features power-ups. There's like one where you could turn your goalie into a literal brick wall and then nothing can get by him. And then, you know, one common chirp in hockey is calling somebody a pigeon. There's another thing in the game where you could turn an opponent into a pigeon and then they just kind of fly around and then you kind of have a power play. It's like a, it's a three on three plus goalies kind of game. So then, you know, you turn one of their guys into a pigeon and then they're shorthanded. And then you could like get equipment upgrades, like 
new sticks, new helmets, stuff like that. There is a demo that you could download on Steam. I'll put the link to that. And then there's also a Kickstarter campaign because Chris needs about 25,000 Canadian to produce the game. The game's been developed for a couple of years. He just needs that last little bit to get him over the hump because he's working with designers, programmers, artists, stuff like that. All these things cost money. I mean, you can only do so much by yourself. And then, of course, you got to, like, get the game put on, you know, the different platforms for download. And right now they're about 60% funded. So it's been a successful Kickstarter. It goes until October 28th. And, I mean, I'll just give you, like, a for instance. For $30 Canadian, which is about $22 U.S., you can pre-order the game for PC, PlayStation 5, or Xbox S or X series. So if you think about it, like if you go to the store and you buy like an Xbox game, it's not $22. It's like $50, $60. So I mean, here you'd be getting the game for like $22 bucks American. If you go on the Kickstarter and you contribute that level, and then when the game's ready in early 2024, you can download it. So I'm definitely going to check it out. I don't know if your kids play games still or not, but might be something they like or my son is really into into video games he's 11 and this is all 11 year olds do now yeah that we did it too but they you know that that communicate you know the pandemic really helped make that their social life and it's stuck so right um but it's you know it's it's fun i mean i play sometimes but my hand-eye coordination is not what it used to be, (laughs) you know 30 years ago where i was playing like nhl 93 like or 92 like oh all, yeah all day long like all day long and it was it was fun yeah absolutely i mean one of my friends i mean he's a little older than me he talked about playing blades of steel for the old nintendo and he said that he actually used to keep a notebook and he and his friends would actually um write down their scores who won and who lost and by how many points and whatnot and then i know that like when I used to play NHL 94 with my friend, we used to kind of keep like a running tally of like who won, how many games. I think we would probably write them down. We weren't maybe that elaborate about it. But now, I mean, a lot of these games, they have leaderboards and you could play online and stuff like that. So it's definitely evolved where I could see how it would hold the kid's attention in other ways that maybe we didn't necessarily have. Correct. Yeah, the technology wasn't there. I remember like the biggest addition from 93 to 92 was... If you shot the puck high and would break the glass, that was yeah. like that was like the, that was like amazing. Like whoa, they added this part, but um, it was cool because he had the expansion teams coming up in those years, and it was just a lot of fun. And you know, I look back very fondly. I you know I still have the cartridges. They're not worth anything, I think, but I still have them because sentimentally, you know, for my Sega Genesis, I used to use them, and they were really cool. And you know, I never. I never got rid of them, but then throwing them out now just seems wrong. So I just have them in a box, and it's cool to talk about with my kids. Well, I'll say this. If you have them and you kept them this long, keep them. If you have the box, by all means, keep it, because a lot of times the box sells for more than the game itself. Yeah. Because, you know, people threw away the boxes. I saved all my Nintendo boxes, all my Super Nintendo boxes, I tried to save all my Atari boxes, but I remember my grandmother threw them all out. Like I was stashing them all under, and like the TV stand under the TV, you know what I mean? And and she just one day she just threw them all out, and I was just like, why'd you do that? She's like, they're the boxes. I didn't throw away the games. I threw away the boxes. And I was like, but the boxes have the artwork that's bigger, you know. So which it seems counterintuitive, but it makes sense. I mean, I know people are like getting VHS tapes and also video games like slabbed. 
which mm-hmm. is cool, but then you really can never use it. It just, it's for show. It's to put it on a shelf somewhere to display, which is cool. But a lot of this 90s stuff has really become nostalgic. And so I think everything's worth something now, it seems. Um, but yeah, I have stuff. I have all this stuff saved up still. So, I mean, I think we're of the similar opinion on graded cards. But the one thing I will say is that I think graded cards is probably the only medium where it kind of makes sense because you could still look at the front and you could look at the back. But like I see like graded comic books and it's just like, well, you can never read it now. It's entombed, you know? It's, it's like a poster, just the cover. It's all. Right. Yeah. To like a lesser extent, like when I see like graded action figures, maybe not in package figures, because if you kept the figure in package, you're probably not going to open it. And it's got a front side and a back side. But when I see like loose figures that are graded, I don't necessarily want to play with that figure. But like, unless I guess all your figures are graded and then you have that kind of uniformity, it's just kind of like if you buy like, one rare Star Wars figure and it's graded and then the rest of them are not graded and then you have them like on your shelf that just looks a little weird or like, you know, like grading records or something like that. Or like you said, even like a video game because you can't play it. Does it even work? You don't know. It's graded. So I guess as long as the sticker on the box is good, that's all that matters, right? Yeah, and also the grading companies don't care. They want to grade everything because they want you to pay for grading. And so, you know... So that's what they do. And people get stuff graded all the time now. And, you know, I, I'm just getting around to the idea of cards getting graded. Like, I'm not against graded cards. And often I will buy cards online that are graded just to make sure they're legit. And now they go through the extra authentication on eBay, which is a pain that takes a little longer. It reminds me of buying cards 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But you know what? I appreciate that because I don't want to buy a loose card that's, you know, elusive. Let's say like a Wayne Gretzky rookie. And then mm-hmm. turns out, like, I know you have a story about that that turns out it's not real. And then now you're just stuck with this card that you might've paid a thousand dollars for or $500 or whatever. And it's not even the real deal. And you, what are you going to do? The person that sold it to you could have also said, I didn't know. And so it becomes this whole thing. So graded is good for this particular reason. And the fact that eBay will double authenticate it because you can make fake slabs too. Right. Right. So so I, I kind of appreciate that process, even though, I think the threshold is lower now at $300 or $500. So it's, it's, it, it gets lower and lower to the point where it's like, I just want that card. I just want it in my hands. I don't want to wait a month now. But these are all things as the hobby gets more popular, especially since the pandemic, there's a lot more people out there who are unscrupulous who want to take advantage of that. And I feel like at every major card show now, we hear about somebody getting arrested at the card show for selling something fake or, or people online doing really awful things, which, you know, is, is, is horrible. So I want to talk about Connor Bedard because I think that's like the biggest or one of the biggest questions. I mean, if you're in Chicago, it's the only question we have is how is Connor Bedard going to do? Is he going to win rookie of the year? Is he going to help the team? Is the team going to make the playoffs? Should they tank this year as well and try to get another high pick? You know what I mean? Like, let's not be a mediocre team. Let's be bad for a few seasons or whatever. I know that like, He's got really high odds to win the Rookie of the Year award. But you know what? I've talked so much about Connor Bedard and being in Chicago, and that's kind of all they're talking about. I mean, give you like a quick for instance, like not only is the team televising their preseason games, which which they've done now for quite some time, but like even a preseason game, the Blackhawks' first preseason game, 
they talked about it on the local news and it wasn't even during sports. It was like during like that first five to 10 minutes, you know, Oh, Connor Bedard made his Blackhawk debut in a preseason game against the Minnesota wild. Right. And I was just thinking, wow, they're talking about this at like, you know, three minutes after 10. So this is really like one of their top stories. So it's been such a big deal here. You're in New York. So obviously maybe not everybody's talking about Connor Bedard there, but I want to know what your thoughts are on this or what you have to say about this, because you're a little more detached where to me, it's kind of like I've just been enveloped in it since the Blackhawks won the draft lottery. You know, absolutely. And, and as one of the few people probably who've actually seen him play, I, I saw him scrimmage and, and, and practice at that upper deck event that they had in September um, in Washington, DC, which was cool to see him on the ice and, and skating around and look, his numbers don't lie from his minor league days, his Canada national team days. Those numbers don't lie. Um, if you watch YouTube videos of him, he's got extraordinary speed. He's got a great shot. You know, the thing I noticed when I saw him up close was how small he was. And I just wonder how that will translate into the league. Um, I do think bigger guys are going to go after him and whether or not the Blackhawks play in a certain way to protect him more. We'll see. You know, he reminds me a lot about Sidney Crosby. He gives me those Sidney Crosby type vibes, which are a good omen because you know, mm-hmm. Sidney is a great player. So in terms of the hype outside of it, I don't get any sense of it in New York. Okay. So he doesn't register here. It doesn't mean anything because I'm sure when Lafreniere was drafted number one in New York, no one in Chicago was talking about it. So that doesn't matter to me. But when I was talking to him and interacting with him a little bit and seeing him interact with the media, my big thing was, the NHL needs stars to break out of that Chicago market or New York market. They need to become national in some way. And I do find that maybe he's got, he's really young. I mean, look at that event. It was kind of crazy how young these guys are. I and mean, he's only 18. I don't even think he shaves. Like that's <laughs> how young he looked. And so I want, and he was good with the media. I thought it was very mature. And I wonder, can he be marketed not just by upper deck, but by the league? Can he become a national kind of spokesperson for products? I wonder that. Does it resonate with, with everyday fans? Do they talk about him like they talk about, you know, football players, let's say. So I, I was looking at that to see could, could that translate for the league? Because the league really needs, I think, superstars that transcend the sport. I mean, look at like Major League Soccer. They got Messi and everyone's talking about Messi for weeks. And they look at the NFL. They have all these superstars. They talk about them every Sunday, every week. You know, Travis Kelsey dates Taylor Swift. And that's what everyone's talking about. Now, does Connor Bedard need to date Taylor Swift? I don't know. Like, to get attention? I don't know. But I do think if he has a really great October, November, the mania will become national. I think people are going to want to see him in different markets. Like, when he comes to New York, people are going to want to see Bedard. Just like they used to see Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky. When Gretzky came to your market, you those games sold out because they want to see that player. Look, it's a lot of pressure on a, on a young kid. I just hope he has a... A good season. It doesn't he stays healthy? That's important. And I want to see him do well because I think it's good for the sport in general to, to have these emerging new stars. I do feel the stars, quote unquote, the last few years haven't really panned out. Like Lafreniere, we can talk about him later. To the point where they're in the same category as Gretzky, Ovechkin, Crosby, this sort of pantheon type thing. And he's a young guy. We'll see what happens. But it's exciting to see a rookie with this much excitement in, in a in a major market, think about this. If he had ended up in Columbus, we'd be talking about something totally different now. 
So we would be talking yeah. about what was on his cell phone <laughs> that Mike Babcock found. Right. And, you know, I, I, I only shudder to, to, to imagine what's on his phone or any, any 18 year old's phone, but, but yeah. So in that sense, I do, I do, I'm curious to see what happens and look, being an original six market, I think is great. And I think that helps him and the league in Chicago. I mean, I'm not from there. You are, you know, Chicago is a great sports town, like Philly and like New York. And it's tough to make it there. Like fans are gonna, they're tough. Fans mm -hmm. are tough on you. And so it's nice to see, you know, I mean, we, we kind of, you know, it's funny when the media was asking questions, they were, you know, at that point back in September, he had never been to Chicago, he said. And so somebody asked him like, do you even know like what to put what to put in a hot dog or what kind of pizza you like? And he was like, no, I don't know any of that. So, you know, Chicago is the kind of place where like, you don't want to mess up your food order. Otherwise the fans might turn on you. Right. So, um, so I'm curious about that, that kind of stuff. The, the outside of the hockey stuff is curious to me too, not just the ice stuff. Well, I mean, you see that with like a lot of, a lot of players. I mean, I even love reading like old stories about, players um like i can't remember who it was specifically but i remember reading about like when the uh, league expanded in 1967 and then there were guys playing for the la kings and a lot of them were like i've only been to the six cities that we played in during the original six era and now all of a sudden i'm playing for the los angeles kings and i've never been to los angeles and i don't know anything and i don't know anyone and like like that kind of culture shock, right? Like the food's different, everything's different, the traffic's different, you know, like, I really wish I remember who the player was, but he talked about how like the players, they'd rent houses together, but they talk about like how four or five of them would pile into a car, another four or five would pile into a car. And, you know, so there'd be like four or five cars going on the LA freeway to the Great Western Forum and just how they'd get lost because they're all from Canada and they were, you know, knew how to drive to the rink that was in Toronto or in Montreal or in Detroit or whatever. So, yeah, it is funny to hear like those kind of culture shock things that like the 18 year old rookie has to discover or find out about. I know that the league did do some media stuff with Bedard and Crosby. So he is going to be, be featured in some commercials and promotional things because the league is taking this seriously, obviously. Now, I recall your article for Sports Collectors Digest when you went to the uh, NHLPA Rookie Showcase. Do you remember or do you want to talk about anything that like, maybe you asked Bedard? I mean, of course, I'll link to your article in the show notes, but is there any interaction or question and answer you want to just talk about really quick? Because I think that'd be interesting to our listeners. Yeah, no, for sure. Like they gave us time with him, which was great. And he was really, really disciplined. And someone like me who's been interviewing you know, celebrities, athletes, and just people for decades, it's always interesting to see what, a, what an 18 year old, how he deals with the media. And so we, I asked him a lot of questions about sports cards and hockey cards. And obviously he grew up with them. You know, he's like, when I was a kid, I bought, you know, and it's funny when he said I was, you know, when I was younger, I'm thinking like, like four years ago, like what, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. how, you know, He's like, I bought cards and my friends, we trade them, blah, blah, blah. And at one point he, he, he said that someone had gifted him a, a, a Gretzky rookie card. He didn't say who, okay. And my only question for him was in that regard was, did your mother throw out your baseball cards or your, or your hockey cards? And she's like, he goes, no, no one threw them out. I had them all in a binder at home still, which was kind of cool because had he been 30, 30 years ago, he would have said like, if he was someone our age, he would have been like, yeah, my mother threw them out. But now I think people are just more keen on keeping that kind of stuff. And he, he hasn't lived long enough to have your mother throw things out, which is what I, what I gathered from that interaction with him. 
but he was he was a good guy. I just I he was very likable. And, you know, and then on the ice, he was just really, really his shot is pretty amazing. And I, I recommend if you, you Google this and go on YouTube, TSN did a whole piece on like his shot and how he developed his shot. And you know, we asked him about that, you know, and he's a very humble guy, I thought. He was like, Look, I just been practicing and perfecting it, and I just whatever I do off ice, I try to then do on the ice. It was like talking to Mozart and saying, like, oh, how do you come up with this kind of music? And he's just like, I don't know. I just do it. You know, and it was kind of interesting to have him just talk matter of factly about things that we like fawn over. And then the other thing we asked him that I asked him was, you know, there's people outside looking for your autograph. Like, this is getting old, people following you around. And he was kind of just like, he didn't get it. He was like, I don't know why people won't look for my autograph. Like, I don't know what the big deal is. Like, why they why they're looking for my autograph. And it was kind of funny. Like, I don't think he's too young, I guess, to get sick of this. He'll, he'll get sick of it at some point. Like, I, I, my guess is that he won't be able to go to a restaurant in Chicago or without people recognizing him potentially. And, you know, if he got to that point, that would be good for the sport, but not good for him. And I, I can't imagine a scenario where he's going to be able to go out and not get lots of people taking photos with him, autographs. I think he's just not used to that. And, the fact that there were people outside the hotel in D.C. and there were people outside the rink looking, you know, people with Bedard jerseys and cards and whatever they had. They were all looking for autographs. And they were, you know, it wasn't because there were 40 rookies in the building. It was because of him. Nobody cared about the other 38 guys over there. It was just him. And so he didn't really fully understand that. And the other thing, too, was before he came to talk to the media, he had spent a good hour in some back room signing what i can only imagine is thousands of sticker autos you know in preparation for these upper deck products that are going to come out over the course of the next you know few years so everyone's kind of banking on him not just the league but upper deck and, and people in chicago and my only concern for chicago and you know more about this than i do is is do they have a team around him that can be competitive i feel like the team has sold off lots of pieces over the last three four years and now they got the number one pick. It's like, uh-oh. Like, I envision a scenario where he becomes rookie of the year, but they don't make the playoffs. That could still happen, right? Yeah, and that would probably be the best-case scenario. Like, you want him to have individual success. Right. Right? Because if he, if he scores eight goals and 12 assists in 70 games, you know, doesn't even play all the games or whatever, that's that's terrible, right? Like, you want the first overall pick, the guy who they're touting as a generational player, to win rookie of the year, like Ovechkin did. I mean, Connor McDavid didn't because of that shoulder injury. Otherwise, he probably would have. Eric Lindros, I mean, he was considered a generational player, but Timu Solani came out of nowhere and scored 76 goals that season. So he won rookie of the year because he was like 23 at the time and Lindros was like 19. So Timu had more experience, right? Like playing at a higher level. So you know, it, it's not always a sure thing of who wins rookie of the year, but you want him to do well because you want him to be confident. But if the team does well enough to make the playoffs, which they're not going to do, they're not going to make the playoffs. But, uh, you know, they did sell off pretty much everybody. You know, they got Seth Jones and, and Connor Murphy are their best two defensemen. They have Lucas Reichel, who's highly touted forward. So he's going to factor in. And if Kevin Korczynski, another rookie, makes the team, he's a defenseman playing very well with the Seattle and the Western Hockey League. Right there, they got three young stars that can 
make the team and make a difference, but not so fast, right? You got to get a few more draft picks, got to develop a few more players. I mean, every championship team, it's not an overnight success. It almost has to be like a slow boil where they're kind of onto something and it, it gets a little better and a little better. And then some of the guys that they drafted five, six years ago are starting to come into focus and, and become good players. But I do want to answer one question that you brought up earlier. Will the Blackhawks be able to protect Connor Bedard? And I mean, they signed Nick Foligno. They signed Corey Perry. In fact, in Tuesday's preseason game, they had Corey Perry on a line with Connor Bedard. Bedard picked up two assists. Then he got an empty net goal and seemed disappointed that his first ever goal, albeit in the preseason, was an empty netter. But I mean, he set up he set up Corey Perry for two goals. And I mean, he uh, set up a couple of assists in a prior preseason game. So, I mean, they're putting some guys out there that can protect them, which you have to do. I think, though, like one thing I want to ask, this is more of a rhetorical question. So, you know that Upper Deck is changing their pack configuration for Series 1, and there's still going to be six young guns per box, but now they're going to be every other pack. And there's going to be, for the first time, a one-of-one young gun. We had the one out of 100 high gloss, or uh, sorry, was that the uh, UD exclusives were one out of a, uh, out of 100, and then the high gloss were numbered out of 10, and those were kind of a big deal. I mean, I remember one year I hit the numbered out of 100 Taylor Hall, but that was a big deal at the time, you know what I mean? I've never hit it out of 10, but a one out of one gold version of Connor Bedard's young gun is going to be a thing once he gets that young gun. And we've seen how a lot of these cards are selling for crazy amounts just right out of the gate. I mean, you even have people putting bounties on these cards, like where you had like, this was in basketball, but I think Drake was offering like 20 grand or something for some cards. So now everybody wants the card because Drake wants to buy it for $20,000. Now, I don't know if there's a celebrity hockey fan who's also a card collector who's going to be saying, bring me the Connor Bedard one-of-one gold upper deck young gun. But can this be a rookie card that hits six figures? Maybe not. That's a lot. But, you know, five figures? Probably. Yeah, no, for sure. And look, we'll know if that card is going to be out there early because people are going to rip this product like crazy early on. And so if, if no one pulls that card in the first week or two, then I think you're right. It'll, those boxes will keep going up in value. But if within three days, backyard breaks has it, let's say, then, well, then it's, it's, done. it's done, you know, like, because what's going to happen is it reminds me a little bit of soccer cards where there is like a really hot rookie every couple of years. And so then people start ripping a product. They don't even know how to pronounce the names. They just, mm-hmm. so we're going to see a lot of people rippings hockey and basically throwing out 99% of the cards that don't care about them, just looking for him. The other thing, too, about Young Guns cards, yeah, the one of one, the one out of 10, one out of 100, okay, those are numbered. But regular Young Gun cards, as you know, are not that hard to come by. Right. Connor McDavid's, right? We talk about this all the time. There's many, many copies of that in the PSA registry. <laughs> so those are, you know, but that doesn't stop hockey fans from wanting. And you and I talked about this at the National. They'd rather get the Young Guns card of a player X, but not this artifacts card out of 99. Like, right. Okay. I'm like, but that's a rookie out of 99. And this is a Young Guns. Like, I get, I mean, I want both. Don't get me wrong. But I'd rather get the 99 one because 
there's some rarity to that. But I think Young Guns brings everybody in. That's the thing. It brings everybody in. And so, look, I want more people to be in the hobby, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these people who thinks it should be like a Dungeons & Dragons type nerd type of like exclusive club. But I don't want people driving up prices for no reason either. I hope I don't get FOMO. Like, I'm going to wait to pick up a Bedard card, even if I have to wait a year. I'll wait. Now, of course, if he has a really great spring and has rookie of the year that card might get so expensive out of the gate that it, it may never come down in price like it may just be one of those things where kind of like crosby and these guys like the once the cards started going up in value they never they never plateaued because they had consistent careers and so i i you know that's the fear now the chance of pulling it are probably not so high i never i never pull high high level or big name rookies young guns i always end up buying them as singles i always pull the guys that played like one game during like the pandemic you know and then his car's not worth anything you know it's worth three dollars so what's the biggest uh, young gun you've pulled from a pack yeah so i lied i shouldn't say that i did but i did pull a lafreniere okay and that's what got me in the the, the series one way and that's what got me into collecting him as a player i, I collect lafreniere because i was able to get his car now of course i should have just done what people do they i could have flipped it for five hundred dollars like that first month Mm-hmm. to it and now it's worth what $50 but I don't get those cards to flip them and to make money I I just collect I don't it's not an investment for me it's fun and the fact that I lost 400 plus dollars I don't look at it that way I look at it as this card could be worth more in the future or maybe it's not worth anything maybe it was it's like a stock I should have sold high I guess but um, that's probably the best card I ever picked up because I bought a lot of series one because I had a lot of money that I wasn't spending on other stuff in the middle of the pandemic and I was bored and I was like, I'm going to get a couple of boxes of series one. Often I go for the base set, which as you know, usually takes about two boxes, but I thought, let me get a couple of boxes. Lafreniere's rookies in there and, and a special, you know, it was, like, it was like a special card because he hadn't played a minute yet, but I wouldn't have spent $500 on his card. I would have waited until I got his series two card, for example, for like $38, I think. <sighs> At a show in New York, at, 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 at a in New York of all places, I think it was forty dollars. And the guy, I said thirty-five. He's like, sure. And that was a series two young gun, and that was last year, like last spring. So his value is just not there. The hype is gone. And so with Bedard, it, we'll see what happens. If he's not rookie of the year, the hype will come down big time. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I know that like in oh seven oh eight, I was back into collecting hockey cards then for a couple of years by then. But I remember it was just hard to find stuff because you had Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. They had their rookie cards in, in those sets. So I probably wasn't as aggressive as I should have been. I mean, I did collect certain sets and I did collect Upper Deck Series 1, Series 2, and I did track down their their young guns, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I think that like those would have been good years to like maybe really double down like oh six oh seven I really doubled down on upper deck series one and series two and you know I ended up pulling like three Evgeny Malkin young guns but when you buy a case of series two you're gonna get the card then I think by oh seven oh eight I was so burnt out of like buying a lot that I think I kind of cut back a little bit. I picked a bad year to cut back because <laughs> Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves are, you know, two Blackhawks legends. And I was just kind of like, oh, I bought so much in 06, 07. I really kind of need to, like, catch my breath and take a step back. I do want to actually bring up Lafreniere because I know we were going to talk about him. But, like, I just want to say, though, you brought up a really good point where you talked about how, like, people are only chasing one card 
and they kind of almost toss everything else to the side with soccer. And I just want to give like a parallel in hockey. 0506, you had Sidney Crosby and you had Alex Ovechkin. And so much product was broken that year. But it was like, if it wasn't Crosby or Ovechkin, most of that stuff ended up in the dollar bin, the quarter bin, the 50 cent bin. And I mean, I'll tell you like, now these aren't necessarily like autographed Jersey cards that I was finding in quarter boxes or dollar boxes, but I would like regularly find and purchase rookie cards of Zach Parise and Corey Perry and Henrik Lundqvist and Corey Crawford and Duncan Keith. And like, there are a lot of good players that were in 05, 06 that just got overlooked because they weren't one of the big two. And I would look and I would just say, why is this Henrik Lundqvist MVP rookie card in a 50 cent box, right? right? And I'd buy it. And maybe now it's maybe it's like a $10 card now, which, okay, that it's an MVP rookie and not a, you know, young gun. But I mean, even like the young guns, I remember being cheap for like, if it wasn't those two players, you know? So like 2021, I bought a lot of series one. I'm like almost ashamed. Like 15, 16, I bought a ton of series one, did not get a Connor McDavid young gun. 2021, bought a ton of series one, did not get an Alexei Lafreniere young gun, ended up buying one off of somebody, I think for like a hundred bucks. And then I think I bought like another one for like 80 bucks. I wasn't going to pay $600 for one, but It's funny how, like, when I tried really hard to get those cards, I didn't. You know, I couldn't. It just didn't bounce my way. But now you look at, like, 2021, people are like, oh, Jason Robertson's in that set. And Jake Ottinger's in that set, right? So now all of a sudden, like, with Series 1, people are looking at all those young guns that they were, like, just tossing aside on the first go-round. So... There you yeah, go. I wonder, yeah, I wonder of uh, this year's Series 1 or and or Series 2, what other rookies should you be looking at other than Bedard? I mean, that's more, for the prospector, that's really what you want to do, not just Bedard. You know, otherwise, everyone just chases that card. The odds are low that you get it, and then it's going to be expensive out of the gate. And be curious to see, you know, I, I mean, we already saw hints of this hype at the National right in Chicago like there was a lot of Bedard hype even though there weren't any cards because he just had the minor league stuff and you know people you know people are spending a lot of money buying and selling these minor league Bedard cards that honestly I don't have any I'm not hot on minor league cards at all and so you know the pre-rookie stuff because it doesn't hold this value and it's not as exciting to me than you know his young guns or his other other stuff that's going to come out still but in the absence of those cards people are filling that void or that FOMO with his Canada stuff, his, his CHL junior stuff. stuff yeah. All that stuff. I mean, all that stuff is going to be pushed aside once the young gun is out, all that right. side, but between now and February 28th, I think it is, it's going to be a long, you know, discussion, more hype, more talk, you know, and we're going to be in Toronto, you know, next month. I'd be curious to see what the, what the hype there is. They'll be mm-hmm. hype. His, his face will be all over the upper deck booth because why not? Right. They signed him and they had to promote him. And, you know, he's Canadian. So there's, there's the extra hype there. And people in Canada already love and appreciate him, I think, as a player. Um, it's just the American audiences don't really know him. But, you know, once he starts showing up at a, an arena near you, I, I do feel like people are going to be excited to see him. And he's, you know, he's a really, really fun player to watch. So 
he's in a good market. I just hope that he has a good year. You know, Chicago has a bad year only because we need him to kind of get that confidence and grow as a player. If he ends up like Lafreniere with like two or three sort of mediocre years, people start to lose patience with him, and then we'll see what happens. Let's talk about Alexei Lafreniere. We've mentioned his name a lot in the last five, ten minutes, and he's somebody that you wanted to talk about. So Lafreniere signed a two-year deal with the Rangers. It's $2.35 million per year. This is his fourth season. Uh, now, after his fourth and fifth season, he's still going to be a restricted free agent. So this is kind of like a make-or-break time for him. Either way, if he does good or bad, the Rangers still have his rights. He's still going to be an RFA. What are you projecting here? Because I know a little bit about Lafreniere besides, you know, trying to get his young gun unsuccessfully until I just, you know, knuckled up and bought a couple. And then I remember the National in 2021, the two players that everybody wanted to buy. And, well, okay, Connor McDavid, of course. But then Alexi Lafreniere and uh, Kirill Kaprizov. Those were those three players everyone was asking about, right? And it seemed like he couldn't do any wrong. And everybody's like, well, you know, he only had a really short rookie season. It was only that, like, half season of however many games. But he seems to me that he's a guy who should be playing on the first line because he needs to get those first-line minutes, but he's only getting third-line minutes. So he's not developing as fast as he should be. Yeah, that's my biggest concern about him, is that he's on this kid line, you know, they call it, which was fine, I think, two years ago. Now he's still on the kid line, and the Rangers, you know, people think the Rangers are a young team, but they're actually getting older. They're not getting any younger. You know, like Jacob Truba and these guys are getting all older, and they relegate other young players to this one particular line where he doesn't get a lot of playing time. So in the end, he doesn't put up great numbers because he has very limited minutes. So when you see games, goals, assists, it doesn't look amazing. And that hurts his value among collectors, but I also think it hurts his value as a breakout star. And I don't think that he's a breakout star at all. Like I think people in New York, there was hype around him, like you saw with Bedard, we see with Bedard in Chicago. But I think if you ask an average New Yorker, like a sports fan, you know Lafreniere, they might say, I don't know who that is. You know, is that the like, Canadian prime minister? They don't know who that <laughs> is. You know? So I do, my fear is that his fourth season, if he doesn't do anything that gets him more time, which I think tells me he will, you know, under, under, under a new coach maybe. But if he doesn't, I'm also wondering, does he need to change teams, go to a smaller market? I mean, he's only 22 years old, which is crazy how young he was when he got, came into the league. He's only 22. But as you know, rookies don't, after four or five years, if they're not going to pan out, they're not going to pan out. They're just going to become average players. And there's a lot of those guys in the league, obviously. But he, the hype, he doesn't match the hype that we saw four years ago coming in. And it's a shame because as a junior player, I think he was a real standout. And I just feel like he's been drowned in New York with the coaching changes and with the Rangers are always chasing veterans, you know, Patrick Kane. And it's mm -hmm. happened in the 90s. They're always going after Mark Messier. They're going after these guys who are established somewhere else have the playoff experience. And then the idea is we have the money. Let's plunk the money down. They want to come to New York as a big market. And can they translate that past success into a Stanley cup for us? Now, okay. It worked with the, you know, basically the, the Rangers rented the Oilers team and won the 94 cup fine, but that hasn't worked since. And they're not really developing any young players. They're not really on the market. They're not really, you know, they're not going through a series of drafts where they're drafting players 
in a, in a kind of a thoughtful way, I think. And so in the end of the day is they end up becoming this sort of mid mid standings team. They make the playoffs, they get knocked out and it's like rinse and repeat. And I don't know that that helps the Rangers win the cup. It doesn't help them go deep. It doesn't help Lafreniere's career at all. So I, I'd like to see him do another year in New York, maybe two. And then he's, I think he's got to go somewhere else to a middle market, a medium market, and maybe get first line, second line, and get more playing time. That's what I think. But we'll see what happens this season. I'd love for him to stay in New York. I just don't see a long-term prospect other than becoming a really, really good, mediocre player, which is not what he is, I think. I think he's better than that. Right, but it's like the whole chicken and egg thing. He's got to earn those first-line minutes, but he can't earn those first-line minutes if he's on the third line. So, Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it, it's too bad. I mean, you know, sometimes you need something like, I mean, as bad as this sounds, but you need an injury for a player to get moved up into a, a, a more leading role. And then all of a sudden be like, oh, wow, he's he's doing great. Look at like, uh, and we'll definitely talk about the Vegas Golden Knights, but look at like what uh, Aiden Hill, right? Like what he accomplished because of all the injuries. And he, I mean, when I wrote about him uh, for the Puck Junk Awards, and I said he was like pretty much like the sixth or seventh string goalie on the depth chart, right? I mean, even and he even outperformed Jonathan Quick, who was his backup during the playoffs, you know, during the finals. I mean, you sometimes you need that that opportunity to to shine, and and he just doesn't doesn't yeah. didn't get that. That's more likely to happen. You read my mind. That's more likely to happen in the goaltender position because when that guy gets knocked out a star a person comes in and a star could be born but when you're talking about a position player on the ice left wing right wing a center there's a lot more rotation going on so you're right like i mean the bright spot for the for the rangers in my opinion is Sturkin. in goal he's been an amazing replacement for lundquist he's, he's great in goal but it's not enough obviously and yeah i thought aiden hill should have won the con Smythe last year you know but um he didn't but i mean yeah, you're right. And this idea of teams like not relying on one or two goaltenders is becoming almost a pattern of these guys getting hurt and then teams having like using like four or five goalies in one season, which is kind of crazy, which I guess is a good segue for Tampa, right? Yeah, let's let that's that's a great segue for Tampa. So uh Andre Vasilevsky had lower back surgery and he's gonna be out for eight weeks. So right now the Bolts are looking at a goalie tandem of Jonas Johansson. And Matt Tompkins, and I believe Tompkins has zero games of NHL experience, and Johansson has 35 games of NHL experience. Never heard of any of them before now, so. Well, it's funny. I've heard of Tompkins. He was the starting goalie for Canada at the Olympics. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's got, I mean, he doesn't have any NHL minutes. I think you're right about that. He has zero minutes. But he's played at some high level you know, internationally. And I always like to watch international hockey. So I always like to see guys like that translate into, can they translate that into the NHL? Not doesn't always work out. It's going to be tough because Tampa really is, it's a really good team on the strength of its goaltending. And I think having him out, you said uh, two months, I, I saw as much as three months, Wow, which is, which is a lot considering it's the beginning of the year and not the middle where you have already momentum in place. So the fact is that you can, you could really start off really badly no, when you mentioned this, all I kept thinking was Tampa is also in the playoffs for baseball. And if I was a Tampa sports fan, I would really focus on the baseball team and maybe avoid the hockey team for the first month or two because it could be bad. 
It could mean some heavy defeats. Now, one of these guys could end up becoming the starter, and he could be one of these like amazing goaltenders who, who makes like 35 saves a game and is consistent. And then before you know it, a star is born. I'd love to see that too. I'm sure if you're one of these younger guys on the team, you probably were hoping to learn from Vasilevsky and kind of ease into it, maybe play every 10 or 15 games or something. And all of a sudden, like, no, no, you're going to be starter on day one. And so it's tough. But teams don't have a problem putting out young guys on the ice, you know, at center or a, a defenseman. I mean, it's no different here. Yeah, they get all the shots. And, 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 and hockey, being the goaltender is a little bit like being the quarterback in football where you're getting all the attentions on you because, you know, you give up goals. It's, you know, it's a bloodbath, right? Then they have to pull you. But I'd be curious to see what happens. Goalies don't get any respect in the hobby. They don't get any respect, I think, in general in the league. But the truth is, if you're go- if you're starting goaltender is hurt, that could be your season. And so we'll see what happens. But I think this bodes well for the teams in the Eastern Conference who are, were hoping for Tampa to be weakened. They're definitely going to be weaker. You know, Tampa kind of reminds me of like the Pittsburgh Penguins, like before their back-to-back Stanley Cups in like the mid-2010s and like after their back-to-back Stanley Cups were like, Maybe now the Penguins aren't really a threat. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs. You look at like around the time, like a little bit before and a little bit after their championship seasons, where like the Penguins could be a contender, could have been a contender then, right? Like they were, they were always in the mix, right? And we look at like Tampa Bay and we go, okay, well, Tampa Bay was third in their division last year, but nobody was counting out Tampa Bay. Nobody was saying, oh, Tampa Bay's going to suck. I mean, okay, they didn't have a great playoff run either, but the thing is, is that. They're a team that you have to respect. They're formidable enough. A lot of that, of course, is Vasilevsky because he plays some lights-out hockey. With him out of the picture, then it really boils down to everything else. I mean, they have star power on forward. You know, they have their star defenseman in Victor Hedman, you know, star forward like Steven Stamkos. And they are a threat that could challenge for the Cup, but now not so much because— arguably Vasilevsky's their their best player. They always say your goalie has to be your best player. And you can look at a team like Tampa Bay and say like, yeah, he's just their best player. There was no argument about that in the past. A lot of times, like, especially when he won the con smite, you know? Yeah. I mean, the truth is, look, Vegas won it last season. They used, I think five goaltenders all year, which is unheard of. Crazy. So, So it's not to say that this doesn't happen this year where they test a few guys and they make a deep run anyway. And they ended up with five goaltenders who got minutes. That's possible. Let's not forget Stamkos is also injury-prone. I feel like he, he, he gets hurt all the time. They've got to be feeling not so great about their chances, but I guess they can take a page out of Vegas, right, who last year won the Cup, which they did it within the six years of the ownership wanting to win a Cup, which at the time sounded crazy, like we want to win a Cup in six years. You know, I watched a documentary recently on, on the Vegas Golden Knights and just the whole way the team came together. And it's one of those stories where you're like, this really happened? Like, it's really hard to believe that they were able to sort of emerge as one of the best teams it's not surprising giving given the expansion draft and the way things are set up nowadays i mean it's not like the sharks in the 90s where it took them like i don't Oof. know 15 years to get like good <laughs> you know you know those first couple of years were rough right the teams don't do that i mean look at seattle look at teams like that don't they're not going to be terrible anymore and yeah in hill is you know i mean he's arguably i guess i don't even know if he's he's their starter now he could be he definitely earned it. He was what eleven and four, eleven and five in the playoffs. Could have won the Smythe. He didn't. But Vegas is the type of team where you know 
they got Mark Stone and they have Aiden Hill and you know Jack Eichel. It's good to see him get out of a market where you know he wasn't getting a lot of attention and into a bigger market where he got the attention he deserved, you know, and the time he needed. So I guess the question is, will Vegas repeat? Will Tampa make the playoffs? I guess those are big question marks right there. A couple of names I heard kicked around, just going back to Tampa Bay for a minute, because they got to do something about their goaltending situation. There's a pair of UFAs right now that they could potentially sign. One is Brian Elliott, who played with them last year. He basically was the backup the last two seasons after uh, Curtis McElhaney retired. McElhaney was a good backup goaltender. I mean, I like Curtis McElhaney because I remember like when he was like the de facto third string goalie, when like a team would call up Curtis McElhaney and be like, oh shit, everyone else is hurt because here's Curtis McElhaney's in the lineup tonight, right? You know what I mean? Like he was just always like that guy who was on the bubble and then he like eventually became a backup and then in Carolina, he became like their starter, you know what I mean? So he just like evolved, but like was just like a really good backup goalie, you know what I mean? And he could step in for Vasilevsky and play respectably, but you know, he retired. They brought in Brian Elliott. Elliott's a UFA. Of course, he's 38. Yaroslav Halak, another one. He's 38, also UFA. Elliott was with the Bolts last year, and uh, Halak was with the Rangers last year, I believe. So, I mean, I don't know. Does he does he have a year left in the tank? I don't know, but these guys you're all naming are really old. Old. And, and it's fine. The goaltender, you want some experience, but I think these guys are or a little older than you'd like. I, I'd rather go younger and go with the, you know, with somebody who's been at the Olympics or someone who's played maybe was a backup last year, but younger because you just don't know how many how many games you're going to need this person. And then you need a, you need a backup to the backup, right? You just can't go with one goalie. You know, ESPN had a story just a couple of days ago saying, you know, the headline was something like, um, uh, you know, Tampa looking forward to the challenge of replacing Vasilevsky. Now, now the way that headline was written, it was like. As if like they're up for the challenge because that is their biggest challenge now will be who do we get to fill this position that is really vital and they didn't expect this to happen now. And so, look, he could have been injured 10 games into the season. They would have been in the same hole. So it doesn't really you know matter. But I think who they sign the next couple of days and weeks, I mean, there isn't a lot of time before now in the start of the season, really. They have to make some tough decisions and, and we'll see what happens. But I do think it gives an opening now in the Eastern conference for other teams to jockey for uh, better positioning or president's trophy. I do think that Tampa would have been a contender for, for that. One other name I want to throw out really quick is Alex Stalock. He played with the Blackhawks last year. He played amazing for the Blackhawks last year. I mean, this guy was coming back from an injury. Our tandem was Mrazic and Staylock, and I was just like, okay, the Blackhawks are totally trying to tank. Like, statistically, the worst goalie from the uh, 21-22 season in, in uh, Mrazic, and then Alex Staylock, who I think missed the season or whatever with it with an injury. Mrazic played mediocre, and Staylock played really well. And then I thought, okay, well, they're going to dump Staylock because, you know, they want to tank the season and, you know, they ended up, you know, having the bad season anyway. But Staylock is now with the Ducks. The Ducks have three goalies. They probably don't need three goalies. You know, they got uh, John Gibson. They got Lucas Dostal as their backup, right? He's a young up-and-coming goalie. And then they got Staylock, who's 36. He's only a cap hit of $800,000. He's on a one-year contract. So that would fit under their cap. He could be 
a backup goalie once Vasilevsky comes back. He could play some, you know, guys got NHL experience. So anyways, I would just be happy for that because I was kind of hoping the Blackhawks would keep him because he did better than Mrazic, but looks like Mrazic's going to be the Blackhawks starter. And uh, so that, that doesn't matter. But you're right, though, like teams could challenge in the East. You want to talk about some of those teams? Yeah, the ones that come to mind really quickly are the Boston Bruins because they had the best record in the league last year and, and broke records and then only to flame out in the playoffs, fine. Most of their guys are coming back, but, you know, Bergeron is not there. And I think the strength of the Bruins last year was their defense, even though, you know, guys that score goals get all the attention. But they had a really great defense. Um, I think it was a plus 35 defensive rating. Which wow. Is- which is pretty high. I think it was the, the best in the league or second in the league. Like, without Bergeron, though, how does the team play in their own zone? That'll be interesting to see. I mean, they also have a great goaltender, right? That that helps. But I just wonder if they can... They're not going to break the record again, obviously, because they were on this great run. But I think if Boston can... They're definitely going to make the playoffs. And maybe with a... with Without peaking so early... You know, that was a thing, too. It was a matter of, like, I would, if I was Boston last year, I would have started resting guys towards the spring. And instead, they were going full throttle because they wanted to break this record for the best regular season record. You know, a friend of mine said many years ago, you can't drink champagne out of the President's Trophy. And he's right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not big enough, and nobody cares that you have the best record in the league. And really, nobody cares, right? And so I would have rested guys and then prepared for the playoffs. Instead, they peaked early, and then the playoffs didn't happen. And everyone was like, what happened there? Like, we were going to win this thing, and they didn't. The other team that I was looking at because of tradition, pedigree, is the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, Toronto, I think, is the best hockey market in North America. But it's fraught with problems, as we know, and they always find a way to mess things up. But they have their core coming back. And on top of that, they got Tyler Bertuzzi and Max Domi. And so, and they had a lot of depth options. So I think Toronto could be one of those teams that contends for the President's Trophy. Now, does, what does that mean for, you know, playoff success? We don't know. If I know Toronto, they'll find a way to mess this up. But I'm not even a Maple Leafs fan, but if they got to the finals, that would be so cool, I think, because just to see a city in a market that hasn't won it in so long, but actually cares kind of like the Chicago Cubs, like Chicago mm-hmm. care about baseball, but they just can't get this monkey off their back. And I think it would be a great story. I think hockey needs good stories to promote itself, you know, and, and to try to break through all the noise of all these sports leagues and all the social media. And that's the kind of thing that would break through because people that are neutral would start rooting for them. I think. Because in a lot of ways, they're like Canada's team. Even though Canada has other markets and other teams, they're like Canada's team. And if it was Toronto versus whoever, I think a lot of people would jump on a, on a Maple Leafs bandwagon. And I think it'd be kind of fun. They have the pieces. It's just a matter of do they have the luck they need or whatever they need to get over that hump. you know? But I can see them contending for the best record in, in, the, in the league or in the East. And then seeing after that what happens is, a, is another story. But... As someone who's a journalist, I do like – I root for the Rangers. That's my team. That's my city. But I also root for good storylines, and I think this would be a really good storyline. Toronto is one of those sports teams that's kind of – well, I don't say kind of. that That is emblematic of the league. Like when you think of like the Yankees, you think of baseball. When you think of football, you think of like the Dallas Cowboys, right? Or 
maybe the Chicago Bears, although they're terrible. I always try to, I always, for some reason, I always bring up the Bears because this is another year where I'm trying to watch football and then I'm just like, why do I do this? But right, like, they're like certain teams are like, you say, oh yeah, you know, like baseball, like the Yankees or football, like the Cowboys or hockey, like the Maple Leafs. I mean, I guess to like a casual fan that even knows what hockey is. Right. Maybe they would think of, you know, the Rangers or or the Leafs or maybe the Canadiens, maybe not the Canadiens. But if the Leafs won the cup, that would be good for hockey. I, you know, I joke about this all the time and I say, well, you know, if a Canadian team wins the Stanley Cup, then everyone in America is just going to lose interest in hockey. So it's a conspiracy by the NHL because they don't want to lose the millions of viewers that are in the U.S., right? Like, now, of course, I'm kidding. I'm trolling. But at the same time, on the other hand, I think American fans who make the joke, oh, Canada's won exactly one Stanley Cup in the past 30 years. Well, okay, it's not Canada versus the U.S., right? This isn't a Canadian team. Only a third of the team, no, a fourth of the teams, eight out of 32 are Canadian. I mean, it used to be seven out of 21. Okay, so I'm dating myself original 21 circa early 90s right like prior to the sharks right 79 80 was when they had 21 teams to 91 92 that's when they added the sharks so that nice little whatever 10 11 year window the original 21 a third of the teams were in canada so there was a higher likelihood of a canadian team winning a stanley cup especially when gretzky played for one of those canadian teams the edmonton oilers right so with american fans troll and say that sort of stuff it just shows how ignorant they are because it's like oh hey dude that's only eight canadian teams that could potentially win and then you know that like certain teams are probably not going to make it well, two things about that one is look at all the rosters around the league most of those guys are born in canada so that's one so it could be the Rangers or, or Chicago, like 80% of that roster is, or 70% is Canadian. Then you have European guys and there's Americans there too, but Canadians dominate the league in general spread out. That's one. And two, during the pandemic, it was interesting how they had that sort of Canadian only division. And then you guaranteed yourself a Canadian team in the final four, you know, in the conference finals, which was kind of cool. But I also understand that traveling between Montreal and Edmonton doesn't make a lot of sense or Winnipeg. It doesn't make a lot of sense to keep them all, but because of the travel restrictions during the pandemic, it worked that one year, but I kind of like that idea of like guaranteeing a spot in a way. I mean, I know you're kind of putting your thumb on the scale that way. And I do agree with you that having Canadian teams in the finals doesn't help the sport. I mean, look, you and I are going to watch. doesn't really matter. When I make this argument, I'm talking about people like us, the people that just jump in. I mean, look, are there really people that come out of nowhere to watch the finals? Maybe if the, if Tampa's in it and everyone in Tampa's excited, maybe. But my other thing is that, you know, if Toronto is playing the Oilers in the finals, I would look at it as like, this is an amazing championship because you're going to have these superstar players at it. I don't really care what market they're in. And so I look at it that way more than, you know, the, the conspiracy is kind of funny because, Every time a warm climate team wins the cup, I guess Canadians get even angrier. It's like, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's not even like like the cold teams like Chicago or New York. They let like Vegas and Tampa win this thing, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> which goes back to Gary Bettman in the 90s with the Sharks, getting Gretzky to L.A. Like all that stuff seems like, you know, putting a team in Arizona, like forcing all this stuff that was smart for the sport. But I can see how Canadians get annoyed because when you go to Canada, they're really knowledgeable 
and it's their sport, it's their culture, it's their identity. It's like it's like going to Brazil and talking about soccer. It's not just a sport they play, it's who they are. And that's why I really admire the Maple Leafs because of what it means to them. And Montreal is the same thing. The French-speaking part of Canada, it's it's not just a team, it's a cultural identity thing. And And I think we're lucky to support a sport that has a league that has teams like this. But I think the longer they go without winning, the more irrelevant they become. And that, that hurts the sport, I think. That doesn't, doesn't help the sport. Yeah, you're right. If there was a Toronto-Edmonton finals, I'd be glued to the TV. I mean, I'd be like, yes, this is McDavid versus Matthews. We've we've wanted this. We've wanted to see this. But at the same time, now I don't know what ratings have been like over the past 10 years, but I do remember 10 years ago, when the Bruins and the Blackhawks were in the finals and the ratings were huge in the United States, like comparatively speaking, like it was like one of the most televised, most watched, highest rated hockey finals in the U.S. because you had these two big market teams, right? Like people are going to watch, look, it's going to sound rude, but I'll just say it. They're more likely to watch if it's Boston versus Chicago or Chicago versus New York than if it was Columbus versus Carolina. I know they're both in the East, so that doesn't necessarily work. But you you know what I mean, right? Winnipeg versus Columbus. I mean, that would be every marketer's nightmare unless you're in Columbus or Winnipeg, right? Like, what are the three million people in Chicago going to be watching? Probably not Columbus versus Winnipeg. Watching Modern Family reruns. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> they're not going to be watching this thing. I mean, that, that's true. They're not going to be watching it. And as a fan, like you said, Matthews versus McDavid, like I'm, I'm up for that. I don't really care that it, it scored a 0.5 in this market because, you know, whatever. I mean, so the league needs to move away from the markets and more towards the superstars. And like, you know, Edmonton's a good example. McDavid's a great example. McDavid is an amazing player. You go, you know, you go to the Toronto Sport Expo and like, it's 90% hockey, and out of that hockey, 50% of it is McDavid and Gretzky. So he's in that pantheon already, but he hasn't won a cup. The Oilers are a market that a lot of people don't get to see, even when the games are on national TV. They're on – in New York, they're on at 10.30 p.m. or whatever it is. Oof. So people are not staying up at night to watch Kings, Oilers, which I love, but I, I can't make it to the third period. I'm falling asleep in front of the TV. It's like past midnight, you know? And so that doesn't help market players like McDavid. McDavid, you know, is is, is and him and Dreisaitl are probably the best combo in the league, and they're fun to watch, and they're fast, and they're and they're amazing, and it's unfortunate because they don't get a lot of love, and if they were to get to the finals, I think a lot of people wouldn't, again, would be like, where is Edmonton? I don't even know where that is. All I know is that it's on late. I have no desire to watch this, and if they were in the finals, you couldn't even have it in prime time. You'd have to have the game in prime time East Coast and have them play in the middle of the day because you wouldn't get any viewers on the East Coast of the United States. And so it's tough. It's, 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 look, the league has been trying to figure this out for decades, and they never really will because it's not an easy solution. And in a world where everything is fragmented on social media and young people watching sports less, I don't even know how you capture that anymore. You know, I was going to ask you that question, and actually I would like you to answer just for the listeners because – uh, this is something I always wanted to know, like, and, and it is about coping with those late games. And I just want to throw this out really quick. Being in Chicago, I'm spoiled because when I got into hockey, hockey is the first sport I really actively sought out to watch as a teenager, right? When I got into hockey around age 13, 
and so I, I actually made it a point to watch as many games as I could. And I used to love it when there was like a 6.30 game and a 9.30 game, not 6.30 my time. So 7.30, I mean, back in the old sports channel days, you know, catch an Islanders game because they used to show a lot of Islanders game from Sports Channel New York. And then at 9.30, they would show from Sports Channel Los Angeles, they'd show a Kings game. And Gretzky was on the Kings, right? So, or or sometimes they would just show like, uh, maybe not those two teams, but you know, I could I could usually count on like a 6:30 Bruins Whalers. So I'd have an East Coast game and a West Coast game, and if I could make it till 12:30 my time, I would be able to watch six hours of hockey on a weeknight. How do you do that in New York? You can't. What do you What do you do when the Rangers play the Kings? What What's your strategy? And it's starting 7:35 Los Angeles time. What do you do? Yeah, so it's not easy. So when the Rangers are like on a West Coast swing and those games are on like, it's not the weekend, so it's like a weekday and they're they're on like at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, a lot of times I don't watch those because they're on super late. You know, it's not going to happen. Or you get like the paper the next day, you know, in the pre-internet days. It wouldn't even be the final sports final. It wouldn't even have the score. The game ended so late. So I often, if it's like a work night, I won't watch those games. Now, I love the... 3 p.m. Saturday game or the 1.30 p.m. you know Saturday game, which are fewer, fewer of those, unfortunately. There used to be a lot of those on the weekends, and, and they tend to do those towards the end of the season because they want to have people watching during the playoffs and whatever. But, yeah, I'm not watching those games, which is a shame. I'm not watching all those Ranger West Coast or West Coast Canada, West Coast U.S. games like I should. But when they're playing in Chicago or you know they're playing Central or Eastern, it's a lot easier. So, yeah, I do think that when it comes to the Oilers, for example, there's an entire half of the United States and part of Canada that isn't watching that team. And so it's an enigma to people. Like, who are the Oilers? What do they do? I mean, the, the truth is, when you have players like McDavid and Dreisaitl on your team and they're putting up, like, 150 points a season, 100 points a season, they're one and two in scoring in the league for years – you would think these guys would be the biggest superstars on the planet. They'd be on every commercial, every billboard around the country, and they're not. Because no one knows who they are. Again, does McDavid need to date Taylor Swift to get any attention? I don't know. But he's not going to be a breakout star. Even sports fans I know are like, I've never seen McDavid play. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't, I don't watch hockey games at 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, yeah, I don't blame you. That's, yeah. So that's not easy. And the league will never – look – we talk about Bedard. He's in Chicago, so I guess that helps. But, you know, I guess if McDavid could have gone to any other market, it would not have been the Edmonton Oilers. But I'm up for an Oilers Maple Leafs Stanley Cup Finals because that would be, for me, like the Clash of Titans, best teams ever. And it's a shame that I, didn't, I was too young to watch Gretzky play for the Oilers. And back then, you, weren't, you couldn't get these national games anyways on national TV. But just to, to be able to watch someone like McDavid, who to me is like a Gretzky. It's kind of a shame that a big part of the country doesn't know who he is. And and I don't know how you market that without forcing it in some way. You know, a fun fact I'll just throw out, you know, we're talking about West Coast. And I brought up earlier about the Kings when they came to the league in 67. And you talked about like the difficulty of like watching West Coast games. So the NHL expanded to the West in 67 for two reasons. One was because there was another professional league called the Western Hockey League, 
which was looking to challenge the NHL by expanding eastward. And like, for instance, like the Oakland Seals, which became the California Golden Seals. And then, of course, they moved around, you know, to Cleveland and then folded. But the Seals were originally a WHL team. Western Hockey League, and then like the Seattle Totems, if you ever heard of that team, they were another Western Hockey League team, or like the Portland Buckaroos was like another one. So there were like all these like really good teams in the Western Hockey League, and the NHL started to see them as a threat. They're like, well, if they're going to expand West, we're going to expand East. I might be wrong about this, but I thought they were actually supposed to take on the Seattle Totems as one of their teams, but they ended up not doing it for whatever reason. By then, the Seals had already, um, they jumped leagues or they folded and then jumped leagues or whatever. I'm a little sketchy on that, so don't quote me on that. But the point was, was that there was this whole history of the Seals being a team before they joined the NHL. Um, so that was one reason, was they basically needed to go into their enemy territory and start putting teams there. And the other reason was was because in the United States, in order to get a national television contract, and I believe it was with CBS, because I remember my old hockey cards from the early 70s saying, watch hockey on CBS, right? But I might say NBC, I don't know. They changed networks so many times. But the thing was, is they said, look, if you want to have a nationally televised game of the week, you need to have hockey everywhere. You can't just have it on the East Coast. You have to have some teams on the West Coast as well, because if we're going to preempt whatever at two in the afternoon on a Saturday, what do people in LA care if they don't have an LA team? You know, if they don't even have a hockey team, I think that's what it's like when I catch a sport on TV that isn't in Chicago, like lacrosse. Like we used to have a lacrosse team, the Chicago machine. I don't know if they're still around because I don't follow major league lacrosse, but it's like when you see a sport and you're like, oh, that's a sport that's in all the other cities, but not my city for whatever reason, right? How excited can you get about that if you don't even have a team that you can kind of like say, oh, like my Blackhawks, this is hockey or whatever. So that's why the NHL went westward was was for that reason. And they weren't really thinking about your bedtime, unfortunately. No, it also makes sense they went west because baseball had done that already with the Dodgers and the Giants moving to California. I mean, Look, you can't call yourself the National Hockey League if you're only in Canada and on the East Coast. I mean, it, it becomes a regional league. So that makes sense. But yeah, it's, it'd be curious to see an analysis of TV ratings, whether or not, you know, Oilers, Kings does better because when they're playing within your own time zone, are teams getting better ratings? I also think a lot of people are not watching games. They're just on their phones watching highlights or whatever they can. And the NBA was really smart in the 90s. They created all this programming around these teams because they realized the NBA became global. And, and look, the NHL could be global too. You have guys from Europe and all over the world playing. They, you know, they were playing in Australia now. Like the NHL wants to be global, right? They, they were in China, you know. So the NHL can, can be global. There's no reason why people, you know, it's interesting. I was watching an interview with Yager, Yaramir Yager, and they asked him about it was during the national, I think, they're interviewing him. And they were talking about, did you watch any hockey this year? What do you think of these teams and Crosby, whatever? And he was like, look, you know, the games are on too late for me in Europe. Like, I don't really watch them. Mm -hmm. Let's watch highlights. And it made sense. I mean, the games are on the middle of the night in Europe. Like, he's not going to stay up three in the morning and watch, you know, the Stanley Cup finals. But there's a way to make hockey more global because hockey is already global. They play all over Northern Europe and Russia and whatever. And the idea of like maybe like the NFL, they have games in London now. Like there's no reason why 
the NHL isn't playing games in Europe. I know they're in Australia. I have no idea what the Australian love affair with hockey is. It just seems like there isn't any, but okay. Um, you know, but they want to in- discover new markets. And what I was getting at in the 90s, the NBA was really smart by not just doing that, but creating programming like NBA Inside Stuff, which was a great program. The NFL does something similar on Nickelodeon where they have all that green slime. And they, the NHL doesn't do any of that. And so they need to do more of that because you need that younger people to come into the sport. Otherwise, what ends up happening is the sport just gets grayer, like baseball. And if the youngest people watching hockey are like our age, that's not good because we're not going to be here forever. And then, you know, unless I take my own kids to a game, it may, they may not really care. They, they go to like they go to the circus. Like, oh, yeah, it's a one-time thing. I went to a game once. But right. there's no staying power. The NHL has to figure out how do we create programming around our stars? Maybe there's a documentary they can do. I mean, think about reality TV. There is like no hockey really in in that, you know, in that realm, like following players around. Like I, I'd be into watching stuff like that. Like All or Nothing was a great series. They do other sports. They do soccer and other sports. I think they did Toronto. But it would be great to follow a team for a season. Like, like I'd love to see a documentary about the Vegas Golden Knights championship season. Like, that would be interesting to me because I want to see the behind-the-scenes stuff. I want the stories that I, I can't get by looking at the games or reading the paper. And I feel like the NHL needs to create more original programming, and they're not really doing any of that. Or very little of it if they're doing it. And if they're doing it, I'm not seeing it. And I'm a fan, which is weird. You know, they did do some documentaries. I mean, of course, remember the HBO 24-7 documentary? Right. And the thing is, though, that was on HBO, right? So if you didn't have HBO, it's like, all right, great. So it's on HBO. You can hear Bruce Boudreaux curse. Great. (laughs) (laughs) But like, like, you know, you talk about like awkward, you know, like awkward stuff you watch with your parents, like when you were a kid, like, I remember like when I'd visit my grandmother when she was still alive and she had HBO and like my sister would set the DVR to record the 24-7 when it was on. And then when I would visit my grandmother, because I'd see her like once, twice a week, you know, to visit because I was a good grandson. And I'd be like, oh, Grandma, would it be okay if we watched this hockey documentary? She's like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever, put whatever, whatever you want on, right? And so we're watching and there's Bruce Boudreaux like standing in the middle of the locker room cursing, cursing, cursing. And I'm like getting embarrassed and I'm just like, oh, God, I hope he doesn't say anything like really embarrassing, at, you know. And my grandmother was just like, oh, he uses very colorful language, right? Like she was kind of chuckling about that because, you know, Boudreaux's like, F this, F that, and F this, and F that, and shit this. And Yeah, it just brought me back to a time when I was, was when I was a little kid, we didn't have cable TV. And so my parents always dragged me to someone's house on the weekend. And my first question always was, do they have cable? Right. If they do, I bring a TV guy with me. I'm like, is there a any hockey on or any basketball like and they'd always have a tv like in a separate study room and it i'd come in i was like 11 they'd be like oh yeah you can go watch tv and like i'd like ch- channel surf like 50 channels i couldn't believe they had all these channels and this this story about your grandmother reminded me of like hey i'm going to your house can i watch can i watch channels i don't get you know <laughs> right yeah that's 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 what it was with like this hbo thing but you know the nhl has done like a few documentaries the problem is is that they're always on the nhl network so they're only being shown to the people who are going to watch them anyways right you know and and it's just like well, look at the philadelphia flyers 22 23 season and it's just like well that's great i would watch this but one it's almost on the nhl network as like filler you know what I mean? It's not like that 7 p.m. time slot. Of course, you'd be watching a game then. So like maybe like a 
five to six time slot, like before a game, I'm using Chicago time here, but you know, before a game, like if they showed this hour long documentary, I might watch it. Of course they want to do their pregame preview before then. So it, it almost feels like filler. And then also it needs to be on like mainstream television because if it's on the NHL network, no one's going to be like, hey, I want to learn more about hockey. I think I'm going to look for a documentary on the NHL network. Now, I know like you and I as hockey fans, we want to see more of this. But, you know, just trying to appeal to that larger audience, it's not really like the, the 24-7 kind of did hit that non-hockey audience because it was on HBO. So it was publicized. But, yeah, it's it's. Kind of tough, to, though, otherwise. You need to break through the culture somehow, the popular mainstream culture. And the other thing, too, is, like, if you look at the NFL and the other leagues, like, hockey pretty much is dormant between June and September. And literally, there's no hockey in the news at all, except for trades and deals that nobody cares about other than maybe you and I. And so hockey disappears. You know, the NFL, for some reason, is around 12 months a year. There's talk about the NFL. There's the draft. And then the, the draft goes on for weeks to talk about the draft. The the NHL draft came and went. Like, if you blinked, you missed it. It was one day, one night, and it was over. So it doesn't resonate. And so in Canada, it does. Like, in Canada, on trade deadline day, if you put on TSN, it's, like, on all day. Like, that's all they talk about. I love it. It's great. But Americans aren't watching it. Maybe you and I in the more nord- northern markets care. But otherwise, it's not part of the culture. And, look, I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. I just wish it resonated more because with a new season starting – there's a lot of really good athletes. It's a great sport. And if it somehow got seen by more people and it mattered more to more people culturally, I think it would be bigger and better than needs that it is right now. And the NBA has been able to do that. The NFL definitely has done that. And, you know, I mean, sometimes when they talk about the top four or five sports, sometimes hockey doesn't even make the list anymore. They put auto racing or soccer and these other sports, MMA, like they all get, this bigger billing than the, the NHL becomes an afterthought. So it's curious to see, you know, I think a lot depends on whether or not these young stars can break out and whether or not teams can go on winning streaks and do, you know, and get the kind of sports center type attention we used to think was important. Now, I don't think anyone's watching sports center anymore either. So even a great goal doesn't necessarily matter. It's gotta be, does it, did it resonate on the phones? Did it resonate on social media? And maybe they need to have a, a great TikTok channel as opposed to maybe a documentary. You know, maybe we're talking old school. But whatever the NHL needs to do needs to happen at some point because I'm afraid that the audience is getting grayer. And of course, I don't want to end the podcast on a, on a negative note, but that is something that's I think in the back of every hockey fan's mind is how does the sport get bigger and better? Because it's already great. And I think, you know, it's it's really a shame that it's not not more people are watching it. And I know lots of people I know are like, Oh yeah, I don't watch hockey until the playoffs. I'm like, okay, but you're missing a lot of hockey between now and then. That's all. Yeah, you're missing some of the best stuff. So I will end it on a positive note then. So as we mentioned in the past, we got the Sport Card Expo coming up in November. We'll definitely talk about that a lot more. I'll be there. Clemente will be there. So you'll definitely see us there. We're not like setting up a booth or anything. We're just going to be walking around harassing people. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be walking around interacting with people. Last year when I went, it was great because... People run up to me like, hey, you're Sal. I'm like, yeah, I'm Sal. Of course, I'm wearing a puck junk shirt. But, like, it was just nice to have those interactions. So, you know, we'll talk more about that as we get closer to that. But that's a positive thing. We'll be there. We'll be able to talk to our fellow hockey fans and 
hockey collectors and, and just love hearing from you guys. Not only that, it's also a Hall of Fame week. So there's a lot of going on with the Hall of Fame and a lot of those same people that are being enshrined that weekend are going to be signers at the National. So like Mike Vernon and a bunch of other guys. I would recommend going. I've been to one of them already. And for a hockey fan, I think it's better than the National. You know, I know it's blasphemy, but I'll say it. No, it's okay. Better than the National because it's 90% hockey. It's in Toronto or right outside Toronto. Like Chicago, like Rosemont, it's like near the airport. Everything you need is right there. Not the best restaurants. There aren't that many food options. But other than that, you know, Chicago's a better eating town for sure. But if you want to be adventurous and get into an Uber and go to like Little Italy in, in, uh, in Toronto or a little Portugal, you get good food there. So if you've been dying to go to Toronto or go to Canada... I think it's totally worth it. Do you agree, Sal? I think the show is extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, I would have gone in April. I went last November. I would have went in April, but I already had plans that particular weekend. So I couldn't be in both places at once. But otherwise, I would have definitely been back in April. So I'm going this fall. In fact, I'm going to come a day earlier so I could check out the Hockey Hall of Fame on Wednesday, you know, and then be at the show Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Actually, going to extend my stay to Sunday. Last time I had to cut out early Sunday morning. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. And, you know, like the difference between like the national, well, there's a lot of differences, but like the example I'll use is that the national, it's like you have to look for hockey. So you might spend a long time looking for hockey. And at the expo, there's so much hockey it's like you're spending time just going through it. Like I would spend 40 minutes at a table and then 40 minutes at another table. And I mean, that starts to add up really quickly, right? Like there were tables I didn't even look at that I just couldn't get to in those three days. Of course, you know, my time management maybe wasn't the best because I probably went to too many raffles, you know, then you're waiting around to hear your number drawn. And it's like, okay, this is time I could be buying stuff, right? Or, or looking for stuff. But yeah, I would agree with you there. So um, any last thoughts? Because we should wrap this one up and call it a podcast. No, other than I think the season is going to be really a lot of fun. It's going to be great. It starts very soon. So, you know, a lot of late nights for us watching some West Coast hockey teams maybe. But no, it's going to be a great season. And I'm really excited about all the stuff we talked about. But above all, I'm excited about Bedard. I want to see what he can do in the league and whether or not all that stuff from his youth hockey days and his minor league hockey and in Canada stuff translates to the NHL and we'll see what happens but I think it's going to be a really good season alright then well thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast as always if you've enjoyed the show please be sure to like and subscribe also subscribe to the Puck Junk newsletter at puckjunk.com slash newsletter for a once a week email about what's going on in hockey collectibles and hockey cards and until next time collect what you like For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.